Well, this morning we are uh, still in Matthew and we're studying Jesus' parables. We're in kind of a little three-week session here of, of Jesus' parables uh, while he's out on a boat on the sea teaching all of these people. And um, <clears throat> last week we looked at the parable of the four soils. And we saw uh, how in a parable, a parable is basically just an everyday story or scene or it takes everyday relationships and it relates it somehow in a common story that we can relate to, to teach us some kind of a spiritual truth. There's something Jesus is trying to teach us in a parable. It's something more than just the story. It's a story that we've got to lean into to listen to. And the reason Jesus would do that is he wanted to weed out who's really following him and who is just there to try to trap him and and to catch him in something. And so this allowed him to continue to teach truth to his followers without being trapped and put on the cross before it was time. And so he was able to teach them truth. And then his opponents just said, oh, that's why is he telling stories? Why is he telling stories? This is just strange. Well, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're really going to be after him, you've got to learn to listen to his parables because he's trying to tell you something. He's trying to teach you something that affects your life and affects your heart. And so it's like you've got to lean in and actively listen. You know, when I do marriage counseling, like premarital counseling, uh, I don't do this with every couple, but for some of them, especially if there's maybe some conflicts in how they communicate, we do this activity called active listening. And it feels like you're going back to second grade and learning how to listen in second grade class. And we do it because people develop these terrible habits of talking right past one another and never listening to one another. And when you listen to a parable, it's kind of like this. you got to listen actively. And what we do is I'll, I'll take the wife and I'll, they'll, they'll, they'll both identify some problems, right? Or some issues that they're frustrated with. And they'll write them down. And then we'll start maybe with the wife and we'll say, okay, uh, explain to your husband uh, what it is you're upset with. And, and you need to just explain how you feel, explain what's going on without accusing him, without coming after him. And you say that and then they tell their thing, right? And you give them a couple seconds. Sometimes you got to stop them. No, that's, no, no, just tell how you feel. This isn't about them. This is about you. And so they tell him, and then you go back to the husband, and you go, okay, now repeat to her what she said. And repeat to her without interpreting what she said. Just tell her what she said. Make sure that you're hearing what she said. And then I go back to the wife, okay, did he get it? Did he tell you what you said? And if she says no, we go back. And we go, okay, now, now try again. Tell her what she said. And we go back and forth until there's communication, and they're, they're actively listening. Well, that's the idea with the parable. You've got to lean in and you've got to ask Jesus, okay, is this what you're saying, Jesus? Is this what you have for me? And that's where we're at with the parable. So I encourage you to lean in and actively listen to these stories this morning because they're more than stories. They're meant to teach you something. That's what a parable is. It's a a common story with a spiritual truth. So before we get into the passage, we're going to be in Luke cha- or excuse me, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. So if you want to turn there, you can. And while you do that, I'm going to pray. And then we'll, uh, we'll just work through the whole passage together. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, thank you uh, for his grace to me and his grace to our church. Um, Father, apart from him, we have no hope. No hope of change. No hope of salvation. I think of myself as a parent after dedication this morning. Father, I have no hope of raising Charlie in a way that he would love you apart from your grace to me and me seeking you and leaning in and really listening to what you have to say. So I pray for our hearts today. I pray you'd help us to actively listen, to hear what you really have to say to our hearts. And um, 
Holy Spirit, my, the, my words be your words. Teach uh, me and teach through me. And I pray against the enemy who would, as we saw last week, take your word and snatch it away before it would ever take root in our lives. Instead, uh, I pray the word would take root, that you'd change our hearts and that we'd leave uh, moving to be more like Jesus. Father, I thank you for Jesus, and we pray all of this through him. Amen. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. He, Jesus, put another parable before them. So he's telling them another story. Last week we saw the story of the four soils, the farmer in his field. This week we see another story. He says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven. So we know Jesus is going to teach us about the kingdom. He's going to teach us something about uh, his kingdom and his rule and his reign, what he's in charge of. And he compares it to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus is telling another farmer story. Well, where's he telling this at? He's in Galilee, which is in northern Israel. It's a very agriculturally based community. It's not the city. It's a rural area. And and farming metaphors totally made sense to them all the time. So he's like, okay, there's a a farmer, a man sowing seed in his field. And we talked about it last week. They would have like kind of a saddlebag over their shoulder on their side. They didn't have a, you know, they didn't have a big John Deere tractor with a planter and perfect rows. And he pulled out the seed and they just scatter it and throw it on the ground after working the ground. And it just kind of went wherever. And wherever it landed and hit good soil, it would grow. Well, this farmer, we find out, sowed what kind of seed? It was good seed. I don't know about you, but sometimes, um, I, again, you heard me last week. I kept talking about my yard and my lawn. That's, and when I was a little kid, my dad farmed until the mid to early 80s and kind of farming crisis. And we got out of farming. So my only experience with farming is riding in the combine as a little boy. And uh, taking care of my yard. That's my farming. I, I go out on my garden tractor and pretend to be a farmer, you know, spraying the yard, dethashing it, mowing it, all that stuff. I just, I look like a little kid playing around in the yard. But that's the extent. And when I go to buy seed to throw it up my yard, if you ever buy seed for your yard, on the bottom it'll say, uh, this seed is 99.9% weed free a lot of times. Why? It's good seed. But there's no guarantee that there's not some weeds in it. So you try to buy good seed, and that's what this farmer did. Jesus said this man sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So his servants, the one who cared for his field, uh, were sleeping, and someone came at night and sowed bad seed. You got the picture? Now, this was a common practice in that day in warfare or in just a feud like Hatfields and McCoys. You'd go and you'd, you'd take uh, weeds and you'd throw it in the farmer's field when he wasn't looking, when he was asleep at night. Why? So that the weeds would grow up and choke out the good harvest and the good food. And it was a tactic in warfare because if you could destroy their food supply, then maybe you could destroy them. And you could destroy their economy. And it was just, it was cyclical like that, right? And so that's what's happening. Is this guy's doing that. And it's, um, similar similar things happen today when we put like economic sanctions on a country during warfare, things like that. It was was a similar practice. So when the plants came up, verse 26, actually before that, let me tell you about the, the weeds that they would have probably sown. Uh, it, it was likely this, this, this weed called darnel. 
uh, bearded darnel or darnel. I'm not exactly even sure how to say it. But it looks a lot like wheat. And so you throw the seeds out and it grows. And as it's growing, it looks just like wheat. And the only time ultimately that you can really tell what the difference is between the two is when it starts to produce grain on the head of the stock of the wheat or of the darnel. Darnel, I don't know how to say it. I'm going to probably say it both ways. But when it gets bigger, then you can tell the difference. And even then, you really, it's hard to tell. The picture on the left is wheat. The picture on the right is the weed or the tear. And then when you get to the harvest time, after it dries out, it looks like this. The wheat on the left and the, the tear, the weed, the darnel on the right. And now the, you can see the difference in, the, in what it produces by its fruit. And the fruit of the weed is actually, if you peel that open, it's this black seed that's poisonous. And this was, this was a common practice in Jesus' day. And so that's likely exactly what he's talking about when they sowed weeds in this guy's field. That would have been the picture, almost, I'm almost 99.9% positive in these people's minds as Jesus told this parable. See, so when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. The weeds didn't really appear to them until there was grain on the head of the plant. Verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? We saw the bag. It said 99.9% weed free. It was, it was good seed. We saw it, right? I mean, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Well, then why are there all these weeds? Why all, why all this darnel? Why, what's going on? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, well, then do you want us to go and gather them? I mean, that's a pretty logical question, isn't it? Uh, the, the grain grows, so we're a few months later, the grain is grown, and there's, there's heads on it, and you can see, okay, there's a whole ton of weeds in among the wheat. And it was obvious to the master that, a, that an enemy had done it, because sometimes you're going to have a few weeds here and there, but when they're scattered everywhere, it's clear an enemy has sown them in. And so he says, do you want us to go pull it out? Do you want us to just root? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Let's go pull the weeds. But he said, verse 29, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. See, the farmer knew something that his servants didn't maybe know. That this type of a plant, when it would grow, after it's grown that long and that that far. uh, And again, it wasn't in these perfect rows where you could go out and just pluck them out. It was just scattered all over, right? the, The roots would have been intertangled with one another. So when they saw it start to green up and, and heads appear on the plants, they said, should we pull all the weeds? And he says, no, because if you do that, what's going to happen? Uh, the wheat's going to come right up with it, and then we'll have no crop. <laughs> I mean, it's hurt already, but then we'll have no crop. So he says, don't do that. Instead, look at verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers... Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he says, in the end, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell the, the reapers, they're just going to, they'll go out and they'll pluck it when it doesn't matter if it gets uprooted because it's done growing. And then they're going to take all the weeds away, burn them, and then they're going to come back and get all the wheat and they're going to put it in the barn. That's what's going to happen. So this is the story that Jesus tells them. Now, if, 
if you read that and you go, I wonder what exactly is Jesus saying? You're leaning in. His disciples were too. And you skip down a few verses to verse 36, and his disciples actually came to Jesus and they said to him the same thing. They asked him the question. Then he left the crowds. He went back into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. See, sometimes that's a, that's a good principle for us. If, if there's something you read in the Bible and you're like, I don't, what does this mean? Go to Jesus and ask him. Spend some time in prayer. Ask him. He, he'd love to tell you. He'd love to help you understand it. That's what the disciples did. He's not going to chastise you because you don't get it. He's going to, if you really want to know, he's going to help you understand. He answered. He said, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So let's go through this. I gave you a little chart in your uh, notes this morning. Let's just go through what Jesus says each of these pieces in the puzzle are. First, you have the sower, right? And the sower, Jesus says the sower is the son of man. Who's the son of man? That's Jesus. The sower is Jesus. The son of man is a title from Daniel that Jesus liked to apply to himself. That was like, uh, what do you like to be called? Son of man. I'll go by that. That, that was Jesus' name. That's what, that's what he went by. Um, he wasn't called that, but that's what he called himself oftentimes as he spoke. And then verse 38, let's keep going through the list. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So last week, the soil represented something else. It represented us. This week, though, the field represents the world. And the good seed that the, the farmer planted, that Jesus planted, represented the sons or the children of the kingdom. It represented God's people. If you've trusted Jesus, that represented you. Now, the, the seeds that the enemy sown for the weeds, those weeds represented the sons of the evil one. The sons of the evil one. The sons of, of Satan, of the devil. And, and in other words, unbelievers. That's who they represented. Let's keep reading. We'll come back to that in a moment, by the way. Verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, Jesus says. This one's really easy to interpret, isn't it? Because Jesus just goes through, he says, here's who this is, here's who this is, here's who this is. The, the, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. So you see here on our chart, the enemy is the devil or is Satan. The harvest is the end of the age. I skipped over verse 40 there. We'll come back to it. The reapers are the angels. The fiery furnace, which we're going to see here in a moment in verse 40. I should have kept reading there. I'll, I'll read it to you now. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Ultimately, that idea of a fiery furnace represents judgment. And then the barn, which Jesus doesn't interpret, but it's pretty clear because he says in my barn, the barn represents God's kingdom, or ultimately it represents heaven. And that's... That's what each of those pieces in this parable, in this story, represent. Let's read verse 40 here again. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Well, in other words, at the harvest time, do you remember what the parable, what Jesus said is going to happen at the harvest? The, the farmer is going to come back. He's going to pull out first all the weeds. And he's going to throw them in a pile and burn them. Then he's going to come back through the field and he's going to grab the wheat and gather that and put it in his barn. That's what he said, right? Did I get it right? And 
Ultimately, this idea of harvest throughout the Old Testament, it was often over and over related to judgment and related to this fiery furnace idea. In Jeremiah 51, it says, For the Lord, for, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trodden. Yet a little while in the time of her harvest will come. It, they would have understood harvest. Okay, that means, that means the end. That means, uh, and what's in the end? Judgment is in the end. It's appointed once for man to live, then to die and face judgment. Uh, Hosea 6.11, for you also, O Judah, harvest is appointed. In fact, Revelation projects Jesus, uh, depicts Jesus, excuse me, coming back on a white horse. How? With a sickle in his hand at the end. Why? Representing the harvest to take in his crop. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. There's that title of Jesus again, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the throne, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. This idea of harvest is the end of the age. Now, obviously, Revelation, is that exactly what you're going to see in the end? I don't know about that. It's, it's a metaphor to teach us what it's going to be like and how Jesus is going to come. But in the end, the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. Just as an aside, by the way, in speaking of the end, you notice the order Jesus presents that in? The weeds first burned, then the people taken into his barn. I've taught you my understanding of the rapture isn't maybe... Uh, the normal understanding of most evangelicalism, and I hope I'm wrong. Uh, you know, most of the times if you go to a church, uh, you'll hear that there's the rapture and we're away for seven years with Jesus and then we all come back and it's good. But those seven years are terrible. And you know, like the story of the man Jesus tells in Matthew 24, there were two working in the field and one was taken away and two women in the granary and one was taken away. Do you know where those two people were taken away to? Judgment. <laughs> if you go read it in context. And it matches up with this parable that first he takes people away to judgment, and then he comes and takes us to be with him. I might be wrong, but that's my understanding of the text. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we all get taken away before any of that comes. But be prepared in case I'm right. But back to our story. Back to the chart. Jesus, when he identifies the people in this parable... He puts people into two broad categories. Every person walking the face of the earth to have ever lived or who will ever live falls into one of these two categories. And by the way, these aren't categories that I came up with. Uh, These are categories that Jesus puts people into. Okay, so I'm just telling you what, what he's done and what he has said. And here's where he does it. In Matthew 12, 30, he says it like this. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does gather with me, who does not gather with me, scatters. If you're not with me in the field gathering the wheat, then you're the one scattering the weeds. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead, all of you, all of us, in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following who? The prince of the power of the air, Paul says. Ultimately, Paul says if you're not following Jesus, you're following Satan. There's no middle ground. There's not like 40 different ways to heaven. It's either Jesus or no. That's it. 
Now that sounds really mean and that sounds really exclusive. But, and it is exclusive. Jesus, but Jesus said it. And Jesus is also inclusive. He says, whoever would come to me would be saved. Now, this is a hard thing to take in, I know. But ultimately, it's what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. He's talking about the wheat and the tares. And he divides people into two broad categories. And here's what they are. Category number one is this. It's those who are following Jesus. Those who are following Jesus. These people who are following Jesus... When we say following Jesus, what I really mean here is true Christians. They've really repented of their sin. They've really trusted Jesus and become a Christian. It's not just people who go to church. (laughs) There's a lot of people that go to church that don't know Jesus. I hope that's not you. I hope you go to church and you know Jesus. That's the category Jesus uses. Do you know him? Are you following him? A true Christian. I used to say it like this to our students when I was a youth pastor, that, that going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a chalupa any more than, or going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in Taco Bell makes you a chalupa. And I'd say you might smell like a chalupa, look like a chalupa after you eat enough chalupas, but that doesn't make you one. You might look like a Christian, act like a Christian, go through all the right motions if you sit in church long enough. That doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. And the only one who can know that is you And Jesus, examine your heart. I can't make the choice for you. But Jesus says that's one category, those who are following him. And here's what it says in this parable about the sons of the kingdom or the children of the kingdom, depending on your translation. Number one, they're seeds sown by Jesus. I'm just telling you what the parable says, what Jesus said. Those are seeds sown by Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to give you faith and to give you grace. He's the sower. He plants the seed. It's all his work. That's why it's grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. You can't do anything to earn it. Number two, um, Jesus, or excuse me, God is their father. And the true Christians, those following Jesus, this first category, they're called righteous. Now, I'm telling you, I've trusted Jesus, I've repented, and I fit in this category. But notice who calls me righteous? Do I call myself righteous? No. Because you know what? If you're around me long enough, you know I'm not. You know that I sin. You know that I mess up. And I know it more than you know it. And sometimes people hear this and say, that's why I don't want to follow Jesus. Because Christians, just they're all just a bunch of self-righteous jerks. And they think they're better than everyone else. And that's not true. Anyone who's truly following Jesus knows for a fact that they're no better than anyone, that they deserve hell as much as anyone, including the guy on the stage. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, I'm in Christ, I'm veiled with his life, and God sees me not in my sin, but in Jesus' righteousness. And he sees me as righteous. He declares me to be righteous. So I ought to live like it, right? Because that's who God says I am. And number three, it says one day, we'll see this in verse 43. We haven't gotten there yet. But one day, uh, this first category, you will shine like the sun. (laughs) You'll shine like the sun. You'll be smiling all the time. It'll be great. You'll be perfect. All the things you can't stand about yourself, they're going to be gone. All those sins, all those insecurities, everything gone. You'll shine like the sun. But Jesus said there's a second category. There's only two. Only two. It's really easy. Those who are following Jesus, and then two, those who are following Satan. You're like, wow, that's mean. 
How can you say that? You don't know me. You don't know any. I didn't say it. (laughs) Jesus said it. He said, you're either with me or you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. Paul said that all of us started in this category. And the only way to category one is by repentance through the work of Jesus on the cross for us. It's my only hope. You saw Charlie up here this morning. It's his only hope. It's your only hope is Jesus Christ. These people are unbelievers. They're not following Jesus. You're like, yeah, but they're religious. Look at they're following Allah. They're following this church. They're following that. Yeah, yeah, but Jesus said, follow me. If you're not following me, you're following the enemy. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no, eh, I don't know. No, it's, it's pretty black and white. <laughs> You've either trusted Jesus or you haven't. And here's what it says about you if you haven't. Your, your notes say about the sons of the kingdom. That's a typo. It should say about the sons of the evil one. That's what Jesus calls you if you haven't trusted him. He said that they're the seeds sown by Satan. You're the weeds if you haven't trusted Jesus. Satan is their father, and they're called lawless. Listen, apart from Jesus, this describes me. (laughs) This describes me, apart from the work of Jesus on the cross for me. And one day, like the weeds were taken away, this category will face burning judgment. That's a harsh thing. Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And hell is very real, very hot, and eternity is a very long time. I implore you, trust Jesus Christ. He's your only hope. Jesus says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. He's very serious about this. I hope you are. He continues. He says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice God isn't going to eliminate all evil and all wickedness and all sin until the very end. He's going to let us grow together. But in the end, he's going to separate things. And by the way, he's not slow in his judgment. Uh, He didn't forget he's slow because he's gracious and he's being kind to you that you and I might repent and turn to him. Because that day is coming and there's no avoiding it for any one of us. And the fiery furnace represents judgment. Look what Jesus says. He says, "In in that place there will be weeping. Why will there be weeping? Because for those who've never trusted Jesus, they're taken away and thrown in the fire. There's going to be weeping because I I blew it. I know how messed up I am. And there's so much regret. You have no idea. I don't even have any idea how awful that day will be. But I know God. And I know he's righteous. And I know he's perfect. And I know he hates sin. And I know that his wrath is brutal. truth is, there's probably some of you in this room that are in this category. Repent. Don't weep on that day. Rejoice. 
There'll also be gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? Well, that's, you ever grind your teeth because you're anxious maybe at night when you sleep? There's going to be anxiety of what's coming. What next? What's he going to do? You'll stand before him and face judgment. And your only hope is to say, um, I'm in Christ. Jesus took this punishment for me. I deserve it, but, but Jesus did it for me. He's your only hope. Revelation describes what this judgment will be like. You're like, isn't it enough yet, Joshua? Listen, you need to know these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. Then I saw a great white throne. This is Revelation chapter 20. And him who is seated on it, that's Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small. Think about it. All the people who've ever lived, all of the greatest people in the world, Every president, every world leader, every religious leader, every athlete, everybody. And then everybody small, everybody who you never knew and will never know. Great and small will stand before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Those books that were opened, that's the record of everything I've done. Everything you've done. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too is thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a book of, that we're all in of everything we've done, but then there's a book of life. Those who've trusted Jesus and said, Jesus, pay the penalty for me. You paid it for me. And he comes and he writes your name in the book of life. And he says, you know what? Forgiven. You ever have a debt? And you get, you know, you pay off your car and you get the title in the mail. And, and or you get a your final statement on your loan. What's it say? Paid in what? That's the book of life. When it's been paid in full, guess whose name appears there? Yours. Jesus paid it in full for you. But earlier in Revelation, John wrote this, describing the judgment of those whose names aren't found there. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or its hand, in other words, all those who aren't following Jesus but who are following Satan, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's not going to be watered down like it is today. It's going to be God's wrath at full strength. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The sower took the weeds. The reapers took the weeds. They threw them in the furnace. And what did they do? They made sure they burned. Jesus and the angels, it's in his presence that people pay the penalty for their sin. It's not the absence of God in hell. It's the absence of his grace He's still there. You're just experiencing his wrath forever rather than his grace and goodness forever. And by the way, his wrath is part of his goodness. Then the righteous, though, look at them, verse 43, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is saying, if if this makes sense to you, pay attention. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
And just to drive it home, he tells one last parable. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Jesus is like, if you didn't get the picture with the field, let me give you one more. Imagine the fishermen go out and they've got a net and, and they cast it out and they pull in fish. And the type of net he's talking here is like a dragnet. So it's either strung between two boats and they go along and they, they pull through and they pull up all the fish. Or there's like an anchor on shore and a huge net. And they take it from this shore and they come way out into the water with their boat. And then they wrap it around and they bring it back over to this shore. And they pull it on shore. And when they get on shore, here's what Jesus says. When it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into, good, into containers or into baskets and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Now listen, we're all evil. The only righteousness we have is that that's given to us by Jesus. Trust him. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Loved ones, here's the deal. You might hear this and hear the sorting of the good and the bad and the righteous and the evil. And you might think, whew, I better shape up and get it right. You might, you might think that. And that'd be a noble thing for you to get things right in your life. But you know, you have no hope of doing that on your own. Maybe you hear these stories and you start singing, you know, you better watch out. Better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you Why? And you're thinking of this like Santa Claus. I'm telling you, no one is righteous, not one, Scripture says. We all deserve that punishment. I deserve it. Your only hope is to repent and trust Jesus Christ. I implore you to. Not to scare you, not to be mean, but because I love you. And today, Paul says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day you get to choose. Choose him. Let's pray. We're going to sing and take our offering and uh, we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. And um, Lord, these are hard words to teach and to share. Um, It's not something that any of us really want to be true, but we know in our hearts it is true. We know it deeply. And we know that you don't want it to be true for us. You want us to repent. Jesus, I pray for those who would hear these words today. I pray for those, first of all, who are in the first category. Those of us who know you and have trusted you, remind us of what you've saved us from. Remind us then of how we ought to live because of your incredible grace to us. And Father, I also pray then for those who are in the second category. Jesus, the part that you leave out of this story is that miraculously you can change the weeds into wheat. You change hearts. You make us new. And it's a simple act of repentance and you do all the work. We simply turn to you. Jesus, I pray for those who hear my voice and hear these things and feel their heart pricked deeply. Let them know that it isn't me manipulating them or anything, any such thing. But Holy Spirit, it's you tugging at their heart. It's you begging them to repent and to turn to Jesus and be made new. And I pray today might be the day that they finally do. 
that for them there wouldn't be weeping and gnashing of teeth on that day, but there would be rejoicing and singing forevermore. Father, it's true. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.